Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Dr. Jonathan Tran. Dr. Jonathan Tran has recently published Asian Americans and the Spirits of Spirit of Racial Capitalism with Oxford University Press. Um, and I was delighted to be able to speak with Dr. Tran about this work. Um, our conversation primarily focuses on chapters five and six of the book, which is kind of the metaphysical underpinnings of his positive proposal about what to do about the state of uh, the church and America and, and its complicity in racism. And as anyone listening will automatically probably be alerted to or attuned to, these are themes that are very different uh, from things that we typically talk about uh, in this podcast. Um, but like I said, I, it was uh, it was very eye-opening for me um, to kind of um, see Dr. Tran's political analysis be combined with such an astute uh, metaphysical and, and philosophical and theological um, analysis. So uh, we don't focus on the, the sort of early part of the book, which is more a consideration of what is going on in um, sort of the American situation uh, with respect to racism and capitalism. We do focus on his how metaphysics and how theology can help us think through even difficult questions of our own age. So um, I'm sure there'll be lots of questions and things, but but I hope that you'll give Dr. Tran a hearing. Uh, he has a lot to offer, and his positive proposals have helped me even think about ways in which my my church, the church that, that I go to, can be more active and involved um, in St. Louis and in the city around us. So um, I hope that, that this conversation will also be generative for my listeners um, and that they will consider uh, picking up a copy of Dr. Tran's work. Uh, we do have lots of interviews uh, lined up. Um, we hope to have Dr. Stanley Hauerwas come on soon, Dr. Mike McClyman, uh, Hannah Nation to talk about uh, the persecution of Chinese Christians today in the 21st century. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, so we've got a lot coming forward on the podcast, and uh, I hope that you enjoy this conversation. Please do rate us, review us on iTunes, find us on Twitter or Facebook, um, and uh, yeah, we appreciate you listening. Well, yeah. you'll be glad to know that Nazianzus and Irenaeus both come up significantly in, the, uh, in my formulations, and of course, as does Augustine, as you mentioned in the email. Yeah. Well, and when I had sent you that email, I hadn't read what the, the I hadn't really read the deep economy chapter um, where you, you rely on those guys a lot and Basil Caesarea. And yeah. So, yeah. So I'm excited to, you know, I've done a ton of these podcasts and then uh, a number of, it's just a bunch of campus visits this semester, but very uh, few people have asked me about the theology and the metaphysics <laughs> of it. So and to me, that's some of the most important stuff. So yeah, well, I mean, uh, that's uh, that probably is as good a place as any, I guess, uh, to begin. Um, I uh, yeah. So today on the podcast we have uh, Dr. Jonathan Tran, uh, associate professor of philosophical theology and George W. Baines Chair of Religion at Baylor University, and Dr. Tran has uh, has a new book out uh, with Oxford University Press called Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism. 
Um, so I'm very uh, fortunate and excited to have uh, Dr. Tran uh, here on the podcast. Um, I, I have not read every single page, but I've read most of it. Um, and this was a big uh, leap for me in some respects. I'm not as I'm certainly not as well read in political theory. Um, and but but I was uh, challenged by it, um, even from the introduction. So um, when when I got to read it, I was like, I don't know that this is really up my alley. But then I, I just felt uh, in some respects convicted in other respects, uh, curious um, and so, um, yeah, it's it's a wide ranging work of phil- uh, political theory, ethnography, uh, theology. Uh, you cover a lot of ground in here, Dr. Tran. Well, it's an honor to be on here, uh, Chad, Dr. Kim. It will be hard for me to not call you Dr. Kim, as is my uh, standard. Um, but it's an honor to be on the podcast and on the other show with your uh, with your community and your audience. So looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. Well, and Dr. Tran and I were just talking about um, his fifth chapter is on the the deep economy. Um, and so this is sort of a, uh, you know, maybe more towards the kind of positive proposal aspect of this. Um, and it, it emerges from what he sees in this uh, uh, Redeemer Community Church located near San Francisco or in a, an area of San Francisco. I actually kind of wanted to start with a very um, – what I felt like was a very bold claim, uh, a very difficult claim uh, to wrap my mind around. And it reminded me when I teach sometimes, uh, I like to sort of set up problems, and I'm afraid that I'll set up a problem that's too big that I can't give an answer. Um, <laughs> and and so I'm always like, okay, well, if I if I state the opposing view too strong or if I, if I state a challenge too strong – um, will I be able to deliver? Um, and I felt like you made like a statement that was like was so significant, and I was like, man, you know, that's a that's a tough one to respond to. Um, and but I but I appreciate that you were willing to state it because it's something I think does probably needs to be said. But on one ninety five, uh, Doctor, you write, uh, uh, it should be acknowledged, given the chapter's attention to specific churches' anti racist efforts, that there's every reason to give up on the Christian church. Um, a tough statement, but he, you go on, it has not only been a site of racism, but in a significant sense, the church in America is American racism, the church, America and racism and inverted vestigium trinitatis of a broken world. Um, so that is uh, an inverted, like sort of uh, image of the Trinity or vestige of the Trinity, um, in, of a broken world. And I, I was just, I was very convicted and challenged by that. Part of me wanted to like say, no, that's can't be quite right. But then I was like, but yeah, you know, I mean, that's, I don't know. It's a tough challenge. Yeah, for sure. I mean, as your, as your readers will know, the, um, the, the vestiges of the Trinity is a reference or a nod to Augustine's on the Trinity, uh, where he talks Mm -hmm. about these kinds of natural features of our world insofar as the world is creature of God's imprint on it. And so he talks about this vestigial Trinity. So I try to take that and then flip it on its head and say that there's a kind of unholy natural Trinity issuing between say white folks, Christianity and racism. Um, Mm -hmm. And I would say that this is one of the less bold claims in the book because (laughs) Uh, for a certain audience, and I think, it, and, and and I'd be interested in hearing what you think, but for say the broad audience of academic theology, 
uh, it's more controversial to say something positive about the church in relationship to racism at this point. And it's almost orthodox to point to the church's uh, tremendous failure such that to eke out an account of hope seems to be the point of controversy. And in fact, that's mm. kind of borne itself out in a number of the reviews. There's a bunch of reviews already online and people love the accounts of racial capitalism. They're pretty doubtful of my constructive account insofar as my constructive account, as you know, really centers the church. Um, mm-hmm. And it really takes me an entire, as you know, an entire chapter to to make that argument um, metaphysically that yeah. it, it's almost like, as I say, it's, it's a statement of faith to believe that the church can do that. And I kind of mean it's what must be the case metaphysically if we are to mm-hmm. have any account of hope on these questions. But in terms of the, the, the point you bring up, yeah, I mean, I think the material evidence is pretty clear of the interrelationship and almost, though the key word here is almost, almost inextricable relationship between those three things. Part mm-hmm. of my book is to say that they are three tightly related things, but they are not inextricably related. And that mm-hmm. is probably a point of controversy for a lot of folks at this point. Yeah. Well, and and so I guess probably it struck me in some sense and also for like the listeners of the podcast, I mean, we almost never <laughs> discuss politics or political theory. Um and and really like I mean maybe to our detriment, although it was sort of the point of the podcast, uh we we don't really talk about the contemporary church too much. Like part of the goal of most of the conversations, all three of the guys that that started the podcast and I uh, we're all raised in kind of evangelical Christianity uh, with it sort of t- totally disconnected from the history of the church. Um, and so in some sense, you know, what that disconnection does is, um, and and maybe it's been borne out even in our conversations, is make us feel like we can, uh, well, we can avoid some of the the pitfalls of the historic church. Well, we're evangelical. So, you know, we can free float away from this um, and we don't have to own um, some of these very difficult uh, moments in church history, which are, you know, just who, you know, what the story is. Um, we haven't, you know, we have, we haven't talked about the crusades yet and we haven't really much got out of uh, the pre-Constantinian world. Um, and so, uh, you know, so that really, uh, and and you, I know you as a student of Hauerwas will, uh, will at least understand those uh, terms a little, you know, to some extent, but yeah. So anyway, I think it's it, part of the reason it felt so challenging and would feel challenging even to my audience um, is just that we haven't even talked about this aspect of the church, just to what extent, like, you know, the church is complicit in uh, the structures of racism in contemporary America. So I think that's why it felt more shocking for us. Yeah, I mean, and, and I'll, I'll say that I, I, I love laying in those spaces where I don't have to think about uh, the contemporary realities. Um, you know, I mean, it's, you know, my primary area of research is in philosophical thought um, or philosophical theology. And, uh, you know, I'm, the, the next big project is a project uh, funded by Templeton on natural law and language. And so I'm spending a lot of time these days in thinking about um, the natural law tradition, specifically during the scholastic period. And there is a certain um, joy of uh, having being able to think about these things in their most theoretical expression. Um, but then, you know, you find that you can't go do that for too long and then start raising in your mind certain kinds of questions. Like, you know, during during the medieval phase, like, for example, 
the fourth Lateran council has always been a uh, 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 kind of, um, you know, um, really helpful analysis of our participation in God's life. Right. And it's the fourth mm-hmm. Lateran council that later on is derived from to develop a kind of anal- an- analogy, analogy entus, an account mm. of how creatures participate in the divine life. But latter points of the fourth Lateran council also have these really unsavory things to say about Jewish people. And mm-hmm. um, there's a historian uh, a literature professor at University of Texas, just down the road from me in Waco, Texas. Um, and Geraldine Hang has argued that the fourth Lateran uh, and these accounts of Jewishness um, are really the basis, the medieval origins of race thinking. Um, mm. And and what is the story? Well, it's it's as I argue in my book, it's ultimately a political economic story uh, where the theology gets appropriated to a story about less about Jewishness and say issues of um, you know old and new covenants and testaments, uh, much more to do with who gets to own property. It's just mm. that the theology gets smuggled in to justify the uh, political economic arrangements, which is largely the argument I make about race in the book. So that's to say, even in my um, pleasured moments of theoretical um, reflection, you know, I, it's not, I'm never far from these things. And as you know, I mean, if you think, if, if you think long and hard about the, the issues driving, the very practical issues driving the theological formulations of the early church, they're not far uh, from questions of embodiment, uh, which mm-hmm. is very much at the core issue um, of race. And, uh, mm-hmm. and certainly they are not far from political economy, uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, the gospel as the economy of God is an early church formulation. Um, and that's the, that's the contrast story I'm trying to tell in terms of contemporary American racism. So that's just all to say, I, I totally feel you. Um, and I find that those formulations are wonderful to think through and they ultimately drive me back to the practical questions. Yeah. Well, and that's so it's an interesting uh, point as well. One of the things in a recent episode with Tom and Trevor, we were sort of talking about um, to some extent, like with, you know, well, and this we were even doing this before the war in Ukraine, but we can think about the attack on Ukraine. We can think about, um, you know, I live in St. Louis and I find that it's easy to ignore um, the well, just the violence all around me. Um, if I live in a safe area, um, I don't have to think about um, all of the other aspects of life here, um, which, you know, the, the the stuff that I'd like to ignore. And I can kind of dig my head in the sand and go to my university and go to, you know, go home. And, you know, I don't have to look at it um, if, if, I, if I don't want to, to some extent. Um, and, but it raises the question for me, like, what is the good of theoretical, philosophical um, reflection? And and I do think it's good, but it's sometimes it feels like a hard question. Like, why should I continue um, to ask questions about the Trinity or why should I continue to uh plumb the the depths of these sorts of things when um in so doing i you know i could be doing other things um Mm. or i could be considering other questions and sometimes that weighs on me it's like well maybe i should be doing something more with my life um than just trying to understand you know the early councils or something and how those play into uh later doctrinal formulation so how do you handle that sort of tension between uh the sort of you know maybe the abstract what feel like abstractions uh versus the the embodied reality yeah this is a great question 
I was just talking with some of our graduate students, our PhD students here at Baylor, uh, who are you know very similar to the really smart um, PhD students at St. Louis. And they were they were bemoaning, I think, the sense that they have as early career academics of needing to take doctrinal questions and emplace them in uh, practical and even activist sets mm -hmm. of realities, uh, as if there's no longer a place for um, peer contemplation, speculative speculative reason, um, reflection on the good, the true, and the beautiful. Um, Whereas I would like to say that there has to be a place for that within Christian theology. That I'm not sure what Christian theology is if it's not at some point that, whether it begins with that or ends with that, that what we are doing uh, through the life of the mind is contemplating God and the things mm -hmm. of God, um, which have to, uh, by their nature, entail things like speculative reason. Um now, speculative reason, as the scholastics, of course, taught us, are is deeply tied to practical reason. These are not mm -hmm. opposite recurring entities, but deeply entwined principles um, of activity. And so uh, it, it, it's to say that in the same way my body is attuned to the practical realities around me, um, it's also attuned uh, to the invisible realities around me that can be only contemplated um, by way of, say, uh, recapitulation or anamnesis, right? Um, in this sense, I'm going to kind of Platonist or maybe a middle Platonist. Uh, <laughs> these, these things return us to contemplation. And in my mind, what they do is they illumine the tragedies of our age. Um, mm. So by imagining God and how God intends the world, then it brings into uh, greater relief uh, things like what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, mm -hmm. And I would, you know, I, at least in social media, there's some, there's been some pretty powerful articulations of how Eastern theology helps us understand just how horrific uh, what's happening in Ukraine is. Uh, and so mm -hmm. these things are not divorced from me. They're mutually inflecting realities. Yeah. Yeah. I think about uh, Augustine has one of his early sermons uh, uh, uh and well, actually, it's it's numbered early. I think it's like sermon eight. Um, but uh, it's on the when the divine name is given in uh, in Exodus three, and sort of uh, first God explains God's self by saying God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Augustine sort of takes this as God and God's mercy towards us. Um, and then God, and then you know, you move on in the passage, and God gives the divine name. Um, and in that place, it's sort of Augustine's reflection on. God in say, like God and God's self. And so in that same moment where you have God's revelation to Moses, God reveals as a God acting in history, um, you know, the, the, this uh, economia um, that you're talking about. Um, and then as well, sort of the God and God's self. So there's that contemplative um, aspect of Christian theology. So yeah, it does, it seems like, you know, the what the ancients understood correctly, which I think, you know, maybe is more of an indictment on me uh, or in the ways that I've been educated is to see those as entirely bifurcated, um, like where you could do one with the at the expense of the other. Uh, whereas for Augustine and even in in Exodus, they're they're mutually uh, interwoven, or they're they're interwoven. They're they're yeah mutually dependent. Yeah, I mean um, that's where the uh, you know New Testament witness of the church and then the attempts to articulate that uh, in the early form earliest formulations of the church. 
uh, are both an indication of what our lives should be like, right? It's a way of saying this is what God translated into the world materially, institutionally, structurally, relationally looks like. Uh, but that's also an indictment in the ways that we uh, fail to live up to that. And so it works as a kind of um, exemplar of our lives, but also a litmus test uh, of kind of how well we're doing at any time. I think one of the wonderful things to think about, you know, then in terms of, say, the early church in relationship, say, to Redeemer Community Church, one way to think about it is say that, you know, that was the early church and this is the later church. But in the span of things, we may still be in the early church. <laughs> in other words, we're still trying to figure out what the New Testament witness has to say about how we are to organize our lives in relationship to the various exigencies uh, in which the gospel is good news. Um, mm -hmm. And so... Instead of saying something like, well, the early church got it right, and then down the line, churches like Redeemer may not have gotten it right or done as well as those early models. It may be, that, you know, 20,000 years from now, we realized the Redeemer church was uh, about as early <laughs> in its fumblings uh, and, its, and its graces as uh, the earlier churches. Well, that that reminds me. Uh, we just I, I just interviewed uh, David Bentley Hart on his new book, Tradition and Apocalypse, and at least part of the proposal of that book is looking at tradition as that thing which looks forward, um, and not only that thing that work, looks backward. So you know, you have people like me. I mean, you know, I have my love and affinity for the ancient world, um, but but what Dr. Hart is proposing is is that that we need to see. Uh, tradition as oriented towards the the final revelation of god um now you know one one criticism i might have of the book is it doesn't it you know maybe i'm too bartian or something i don't know i want to see that as revelation of god in christ um and there's a little less christocentric language but uh be be that as it may it's it is a really helpful reminder that that tradition isn't only that thing that that preserves some past form uh, but responds to the divine initiative always drawing us forward um to to the final revelation so yeah so you know he has that like sort of idea uh as well that you know we don't really know how long time will last um but but uh we we should see these doctrinal formulations not as a, a as a termination of reflection but as almost a beginning um and so and again the early church just being sort of like the beginning of um trying to understand how one lives faithfully yeah, there's a great line in uh, Wendell Berry's Jaber Crow where the protagonist of the novel says, you know, gosh, it seems like my questions are never going to be answered. It seems like it's going to take at least my whole life to get my answers, I mean, my questions answered. And then the, the response comes back. It may actually take longer than that. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, the, the ordinary language philosopher Stephen Mulhall in his book on Grammarian Thomas says, you know, he's borrowing here from from Aquinas, but also from uh, the philosophers Cora Diamond and, and Stanley Cavell, those books I work mostly on in my work. Uh, for Muhal, it's that our concepts won't even find sufficient ground until their infinite projectability in the perfections of God. Um, mm. Until then, we're not even sure what questions we're asking because you don't mm. know the questions until the riddle is solved, he says. You know, it's like any mm. riddle. Uh, what's black and white and red all red all over? You only know what the sense of red is until you get the answer. A newspaper, um, mm -hmm. and so the completion of our concepts has to do with the natural projectability of our lives. That is through our language, uh, and so it's always futural. Uh, we're always mm -hmm. in a in a sense 
being pulled towards that future orientation in everything we do in our lives, whether we're aware of it or not. And I imagine that's what Professor Hart is, is after as well. I, I may be like you in wanting a little bit more, more materiality between now and the future. Um, and I, I suspect knowing his work, you know, uh, that there's there's some of that for him too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like I said, I don't mean I'm not trying to be too like uh, critical or something uh, on that. It was just uh, it was it was actually one of the questions that I didn't get to ask him as much. Um, so I, you know, it was uh, I, you know, um, just uh, appreciated uh, being able to to read that book uh, a little early, even to prepare for the interview. Um, so yeah, uh, Interesting. Yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways uh, that I feel like we could go uh, in things that I wanted to ask you about. Um, and I mean, one thing that was sort of you, you were just mentioning kind of how uh, sort of our um, the, sort of more theoretical or philosophical investigations uh, can can lead us into um, into understanding our own present world. And I would like in your chapter on the divine economy, um, I noticed, you know, you you uh because in part because I've been reading a lot of T.F. Torrance, um, I have him in my mind. Uh, but he focuses, you know, through Athanasius on the idea of Christ as mediator. So, sort of salvation uh, shouldn't be only thought of as atonement in the sense of ending at the cross, but it's Christ mediating is the entire life. Um, and so, uh, the in like sort of the incarnation is the beginning of thinking of what we call atonement, um, not just the resurrection. Um, and so I think there's a sense in which part of what you're trying to do in your book is sort of see a holistic view of salvation, uh, from birth to death or, you know, seeing Christ as mediating and participating, um, and, and or at least, uh, uh, Offering us a means to participate um, entirely in the in the 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 world that God is recreating. Um, so I I guess that was more of a uh, thought than a reflection, or more of a reflection than a comment. But I don't know if you care to respond. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I really um, and am grateful to be on this podcast is the book I think is laden with theology uh, and and pretty traditioned. Uh, and for those who work in say systematics or even patristics, pretty familiar theology, but it's a book on social theory. Um, mm -hmm. And as I say, in the, I say in the beginning of the book, you'll only come to realize this later because it's just going to take me a while to lay out the social theory, which is what I do through my account of racial capitalism. As you mentioned earlier, it, it takes me all the way to the fifth chapter until I get to the <laughs> theology. And some folks in reviews or in podcasts have gotten to those. A lot of folks haven't. So like when I was at Berkeley, which is you know, obviously not a religious institution, or when, I'm, when I'll be at Princeton University in a, in a few weeks, they're really interested in the racial capitalism. They're really interested in the Asian American stuff. They're really interested in the account of race and racism. Uh, very may not be very interested or very unfamiliar with the theology, but for, those, for me, those things are working together. So what I what I try to begin with in my mind, if not on the book, in the book, is an account of creation as um, generally related to economy. That economy mm -hmm. and creation are similar things. That the story of creation is a is an economic story. Uh, mm -hmm. It says something about the infiniteness of God. Uh, in God's eternality, God creates, um, and so creation exists insofar as it exists at all. In God. Now, that's a that's a claim drawn from the distinction Thomas makes between essence and existence. But it's also mm -hmm. a claim, as you just said, 
about the infiniteness of the incarnation, um, mm -hmm. right? That it happens in God's life in so far, you know, as, as the son is part of the Trinity. So, mm -hmm. so what that means is that creation is economic all the way through. It's an expression of the gratuity um, of God's grace, uh, both in its moment of inception and its sustenance, and then most certainly its redemption. Um, this is where I'm with people like Hart, but also Milbank, uh, and saying mm -hmm. that in some sense, incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection are simply intensification of, ready, mm -hmm. of what already must be the case insofar as these are Trinitarian relationships. Um, and so then I have this general account of creation as economic then. It's really mm -hmm. that backdrop, which I think is really just the story of the church in the first few hundred years. Uh, that's the backdrop that then allows me to offer an account of racism as a political economic distortion. Uh, mm -hmm. My argument, as you know, is that racism is primarily about political economies. Uh, now, I want to be clear when I say political economies, both words matter there. Sometimes when I talk about economics, people uh, think I mean something separate from politics um, or mm -hmm. from power, uh, whereas any serious account of economics is always political and vice versa. Um so a political economic account of racism is the idea that we live in a world of extraordinary exploitation and domination, inequality, uh, a world that where those realities are only growing, and that race fictions were created to justify those relationships. Um, that's a political economic story. My argument there is that we need a wide enough set of concepts to take in the totality totality of what racism is which in my book is always structural and systemic. Um, mm -hmm. People like to make a, I think people sometimes presuppose that racism is primarily personal or individual, maybe mm -hmm. even psychological. It certainly is those things insofar as it's political economic, right? We're political economic creatures. And so, um, but that is all again, drawn up against the backdrop of a, of a general account of creation as, as economic or divine economy. Uh, from there, then, it's just the move to Augustine to say that what racism is, is as political economy, or what I call in the book racial capitalism, is to say that those are distortions of how creation is set up as an economic reality. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, for Augustine, it's quite literal, literal economic language, privation, um, predation um, of goods that are created and therefore held in common as ways to enjoy God, but creatures in their distorted desires, in their, say, lack of willing, um, or in the destruction of, uh, self-destruction of willing, turn in on themselves, uh, seek to get from other creatures what can only be procured in their life in God, and that leads to a kind of implosion. Um, mm. I try to articulate and narrate contemporary racism and race realities, everything from American chattel slavery to its present articulation in what I call the aftermarkets of racial capitalism. These are all effects um, quite devastating of an economic reality uh, run amok, turned away mm -hmm. from God, um, turned in on itself. Uh, it's in some sense, the image of Augustine and the pair writ large. Um, mm -hmm. So. 
Yeah, I, I get to teach uh, Augustine's Confessions uh, often for Theo 1000. Um, and so, yeah, those are all themes that, that uh, I get to return to with the students. And I, yeah, I, the other phrase that I was waiting for you to say and you say in the book often is, is the notion of gift, right? Creation is gift and to be, you know, to receive others as gifts um, and sort of part of what you draw out uh, and tease out that's, that's helpful is the ways in which uh, especially racialized capitalism or racial capitalism um, uh, 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 conditions us to look at people as, as commodities or as things, or you use that MLK language, thingify, um, rather than uh, as gift. Um, and like, I, you know, I return to that again and again with the students, like, you know, Augustine has to begin with, uh, we must receive our lives as gift. Um, and that, that is the beginning. Um, and so, and, and we can only do that because we know, uh, that, that God is, as a good God, uh, and is offering us this good gift of creation. It, it also strikes me, you know, you, you used a, a philosopher earlier in the conversation that I don't remember his name, but where you said we can only know the, uh, the question after we know the answer to the riddle. Um, and there's some sense in that interplay of, of being able to receive a creationist gift. Like, you know, we have to know who Christ is to see uh, that goodness in our world. So we have to know the answer um, in that respect of what the goodness becomes in Jesus Christ to be able to receive our own life as a gift to go back to that beginning. There's that constant like uh, uh, back and forth between beginning and end. Uh, and and so, yeah, I don't know. I try to think about how to say that any better. But yeah, that's exactly right. It's to say that. um what I say is that if racism is fundamentally, institutionally, practically the use of race fictions to justify um, political economic domination and exploitation, then we need to do two things. Then anti-racism needs to be about two things. We need to deflate the power of race to explain things. This is really hard for us Americans. We think race explains things. And so we need to deflate the ability of race to explain things things and almost everything as we tend to do as Americans. Uh, and then secondly, we need to have different idioms of political economy. And this is where your point about gift comes in. So the primary idiom of late capitalists um, or even early capitalist cultures, <laughs> the primary political economic idiom is exploitation and domination, then gift would be the exact opposite. Now, what the patristic thinkers remind us is that domination, exploitation are predatory on a prior gift structure. It's not the other way around. This is absolutely critical. So mm -hmm. this is where I say, and I get this from, from the fathers, is that the primary political key of Christianity then isn't resistance, as if we're the outliers here, we're the strange phenomenon creeping up on the natural conditions of predation and domination. Rather, predation and domination is the unnatural thing. The world is gift. That's what creature, creature names, right? Uh, the, the, going earlier to my distinction in Thomas between essence and existence. So mm -hmm. we exist as gift insofar as we exist at all. This sets up creation in a gift structure, um, right? This is what I call the gift structure of creation. This is my mm -hmm. generalist account of creation as economic. And so then what we have is a, is a kind of predation or um, a decline from this reality towards forms of predation of one, against one another. And so, and what I think the church is, insofar as it's the body gathered around the one body Christ, is gift. 
in the same way mm -hmm. that Christ gathers the disciples and says, this is my body broken and given for you. That's what God is proclaiming through the church um, in its frail, broken, bread-like way. Um, and so uh, anti-racism, in my mind, claims that. It says mm -hmm. against a world that wants to eat each other um, and use race to justify that practice, it's to say that we are given to each other. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the church, as I try to articulate in this church in San Francisco, it's like God placing bread uh, in some pretty forlorn places in the world and saying, this is my body given for you. And it is then up to the church members to give their lives in those kinds of ways, knowing that there's nothing they can't, that they give that will not, will not be returned to them infinitely um, in the things to come. Yeah, which uh, I guess that's as good as place as any to kind of uh, think about like uh, what Redeemer Community Church does well um, in in the sense of, uh, you know, like the thing that comes to me straight away is uh, trying to use their their profit uh, for um, the giving, like they, they offer these really low interest rates or in some cases probably forgivable loans to people. Um, and then there's like other structures that, that they have where the, the CEOs or the sort of upper level employees only make three times, uh, at max three times what an entry level employee is going to make. And so, yeah, so I don't know there's if you want to talk more. Is like 300 times. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, you bring in Piketty on that. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was sort of, I, I was, uh, well, I, I guess I have two questions. First of all, how did you come to know Redeemer? I, I may have missed it if you told the story of why you chose them or how you came to know about them. So maybe say a little bit about how you found that church as, as an exemplar uh, for um, this um, reimagining of their place in the community um, versus, you know, simply uh, reimagining from the sort of typical racial capital way of looking at the world. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then maybe sort of some examples of, of how they've been so successful at this. Yeah. Well, I mean, the backdrop here is an account of racism that where racism is, um, premised on a reality where exploitation begets exploitation. And so if racism is race fictions used to justify exploitation, then what you have downstream in our world is exploitation begetting exploitation. Uh, and so I describe in the first half of the book uh, through a long oral history uh, of Christians, Asian American Christians who participate in the exploitation. Um, they don't do so driven by say racial animus. Um, the racial animus develops as a function of that reality but they don't go into the South because they're driven mm -hmm. by say an, an anti-blackness. It just turns out that way because of the structures of exploitation. I think this is a much better and more accurate account of how racism tends to work in our society rather than the hyperbolic ones we tend to focus on. And the ones we tend to focus on are things like, you know, the Klan, the red faced sheriff armed with attack dogs and fire hoses against black civil rights workers, the redlining mortgage um, uh, agent, um, you know, where the racism burns inside of her. 
these are entirely too hyperbolic and what it sets up is forms of on the one hand cancel culture on the other hand's virtue signaling where mm-hmm. we may not be actually anti-racist but we sure the heck don't want to be considered racist. <laughs> so the way we ensure that publicly is we participate in canceling and virtue signaling, all the while participating in the very structures and systems that work against, say, black and brown life, uh, housing, mm-hmm. education, healthcare, employment. And so what I want to do is give us a more accurate account of how racism is actually operating and how most of us are complicit in those realities. It's against that backdrop that then redeem what Redeemer is trying to do in trying to deflate racial categories on the one hand and then offer different idioms. It's against that backdrop that then they present something like good news. And they would be the mm-hmm. first to say as imperfect, imperfectly as, as one can do it. Now, I think they're a pretty amazing community. I learned about them through something called the Ecclesia Project. Mm. Uh, you may or may not be aware of. It's a group of um, churches, Catholic and Protestant um, across the country that have uh, kind of taken up what some people have called in the last few years, the new monasticism. It's often associated with that, uh, which of course draws its image of what the church is from the early monastic communities. Um, And so these are churches often involved in um, neighborhoods and communities that have been neglected um, are not invested in by local infrastructure, are disempowered, disenfranchised politically, uh, are on, say, the underside of history or certainly on the underside of, of um, neoliberal capitalism. And these churches and these communities of Christians are trying to give their life for these communities um, because mm-hmm. they believe these communities is where God is and some of those beautiful things in the world are. Uh, and so instead of saying we want to avoid those communities or maybe in our sacrifice, we're willing to be with these communities, these Christians are saying that's some of the most joyful um, places I can be in the world. Uh, and that's where I'm going to go. And so I learned about Redeemer Community Church through uh, this network of churches in America uh, doing this pretty amazing work. Um, they're unlike the churches that most of us go to. Um, mm-hmm. They're less comfortable, less polished. Um, and, you know, maybe because what they think the gospel requires and makes possible uh, is a very different kind of life. And this is where the Anabaptist sensibilities, as well as the early kind of uh, patristic uh, monastic sensibilities, get articulated through these kinds of communities. Mm. Uh, um, so going to your question, what yeah. do they do well, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what they do well is in some ways uh, the mere opposite of what many of us do um, poorly uh, or just as a matter of course, uh, which is instead of seeking to exploit exploitation, um, they seek to reverse systems of exploitation. And so what they've done is, uh, you know, most of these folks are educated at elite schools, mostly the University of California system, uh, Stanford University. A lot of them are teachers or electrical engineers, computer scientists, you know, Silicon Valley. And they all started as, you know, um, upwardly mobile professionals. And then they got some Jesus in them um, <laughs> by being in these communities and realizing God is on the side of the oppressed and pitched their tents just like Christ incarnated uh God's self in these kinds of communities. And so what they've done is there's a church, there's a software company, Dayspring Partners, 
that generates income as a for-profit company, but they use the money to redistribute monies to the local neighborhoods and communities. That's what the neighbor fund, the loan, the, the microloan system you're talking about, but most fundamentally through their school uh, that they've created mm. in this community. In San Francisco, where there's serious brokenness in public education, just like there is really everywhere in our country, uh, about um, you know a quarter of the population goes to private school, uh, mm. uh, which is very, very high. And um, private schools in San Francisco cost on average, now this is the average cost, about $35,000 a year. And what Redeemer has been able to do by redistributing income is to provide high quality education for the kids in these communities, basically for free mm. um, because they believe that what part of the gospel articulates is uh, redistribution or in the language of Duke Quan, Pastor Duke Kwan and Greg Thomas in a book recently, reparation, um, mm. economic repair. Uh, if, if racial capitalism is fundamentally about theft, uh, then we have debts and it is mm-hmm. part of the demands of justice to repay um, debts. And so, but it's also, uh, it's a good thing to give up, to dispossess. Um, and so these are some pretty extraordinary people, mainly because they're doing pretty ordinary things. Um, mm-hmm. And they think that these extraordinary slash ordinary things are demanded and enabled by the gospel. Yeah, that's really powerful. Um, yeah, I, I was quite impressed by their, cause I, we go to a church, uh, here in St. Louis and it was, uh, you know, it was a church that was trying to consider the legacy of, um, uh, like Michael Brown and some of the issues in St. Louis. And, it, you know, I feel like we've hit a little bit of a, of a, like, uh, are starting to spin our wheels a little bit. Like, what do we mean when we say reconciliation or what are ways in which we can sort of enact some of these things? So, I mean, even just as hearing you talk and reading through some of what uh, the Redeemer uh, Community Church is doing, I was just, you know, thinking like, you know, what are ways that we can in St. Louis uh, do so- like, you know, I don't know what it would be here. I don't, I mean, it doesn't seem like software uh, is the obvious one for us. Um, although I guess there is some uh, sort of uh, uh, tech startups here, but yeah, I don't know. Just like we're we're in a we're in a community where I like I live in this place called Shaw, um, and it's um, it was at one point a sort of poor area. It's probably you know you probably use the language of gentrification, and our church is right here. Um, but like you can go across one or two streets and it's nowhere near like the the cost of property is way lower. You know, just thinking about like other ways in which we can, you know, we could sort of re, uh, do reparations or redistribution or, you know, rethink our place in the, the yeah, the local economy. Um, yeah, it's, it's very suggestive and helpful. Yeah. And this is where the metaphysics uh, of deep economy or say God's grace or gift economy as a general feature of creation uh, really opens our imagination. Uh, I mean, we are not, in a sense, trying to make these things up as Christians. We're rather leaning into a story that the church has told since the beginning. Mm -hmm. This is actually how creation is set up um, in its goodness at the point of inception and in its redemption. And so things like reparation or reconciliation, again, aren't outliers. They're just the most natural things you do if Christ has saved the world like we believe Christ has. Um, 
And so it's redistribution, um, re uh, you know, uh, reconciliation are no different than singing worship songs on Sunday morning. In fact, the singing mm. of worship songs is the rehearsing of the metaphysics, uh, right? That makes these things natural outcomes to who the church is. Um, this would be the yeah, whole version of the Trinity, the visible trinities in the world. Right. Uh, over and against the very long-lasting and persistent witness of the unholy trinity of the church and its participation in exploitation. Uh, I mean, one of the key things I try to do in the book is tell a story where, the, and this goes back to your initial question, one of the key things I'm committed to in this book is telling a story where the church is not just a villain, which doesn't mean it's not also a villain. It has often been, but it's not just a villain. And this was what I mean by a, this is a statement of faith more than anything. It's the belief that God isn't done with the church. Um, and so even in the face of the unholy trinities that it participates in, uh, God is going to take, you know, in the language of Hauerwas, take all the time in the world to make God's people faithful. Um, and there may be, um, just a, a smudgeon of witness like that, maybe like what your church is doing in Shaw, uh, but it's there. And uh, they, are, uh, they are signs in our world that God has not abandoned it. And in fact, God is redeeming it. It's hard not to just want to end the conversation right there. Uh, I, um, on the one hand, it would be a nice circle. You, we, were, we talked about the Trinity and all that. I did. I knew that you were a student of Hauerwas. I did sort of have the question, like one thing that I've noticed, like later in his life, he talks. Uh, uh, he will talk occasionally about how. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't, people want to know what does it look like? Some of the stuff that he proposes, what does it look like? I sort of felt like in the second half of your book, you were trying to say, it can't like, let me see if I can put some, some flesh on this. Um, like that, that this, can, what can it look like? Um, is that a fair way to, I mean, I don't know. Is that a fair way to look at part of what you're doing is, is trying to see how can we enact this? Yeah, I mean, this being uh, the gospel and this being yeah. our loss. <laughs> yeah, well, either well, either way, yeah, I guess I'm being vague. Uh, yeah. I mean, these, this gets into long-standing debates about how we read Augustine and uh -huh. specifically how we read uh, the City of God. I think, uh -huh. you know, one of, the, one of the ways we've read the City of God um, is to say that uh, part of what redemption looks like is an enactment of Christianity within the politics of the world's orders. Um, mm -hmm. Another way we've read it is as a strict division between mm -hmm. good news and the world's political orders. Um, what I try to do in my account of deep economy is to offer a metaphysical ecology or an ontology where it makes less sense to make strong divisions between those two things. Um, and I think this is trying to fill out some of the ontology that Hauerwas kind of worked on for decades. I mean, you'll know at the the, the last words of the book uh, of the book are the church being the church. And if mm -hmm. anyone who has read Stanley Hauerwas, they would know yeah. those are Hauerwas's words. I mean, Hauerwas otherwise turns up very little in this book. Mm -hmm. uh, as you said, I'm a student of Hauerwas. And, you know, my own biography is I grew up outside of Christianity um, and became Christian about age 20 and uh, fell in love um, with its picture of political community um, and thought it was and still believe it is the best thing since sliced bread. Um, 
what, so when I, you know, when I discovered Hauerwas, it was, you know, a discovering of inclinations and intuitions I wished could be articulated and found that some dude had been doing so for decades. So I studied with Hauerwas and, you know, these were heady days at Duke where Duke was kind of setting a lot of the theological agenda in America. And everyone was talking about, you know, the definitive article, article the church. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that they were nervous about, say, Protestant and Anabaptist versions. So there's a lot of conversion to Catholicism and, and mm-hmm. Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, so when I left Duke uh, in 2006, I was a thoroughgoing Hauerwasian. Mm. Um, and it was all about, quote, the church. And I didn't care about things like the academy insofar as the academy wanted to talk about religious studies and not the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, then I started reading folks like Stanley Hauerwas, you know, my other Stanley. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I'm sorry, Stanley Cavell, who's my other. Oh, Stanley. oh, yeah. And uh, Cavell thinks that we both are communal creatures, but we're also alienated, estranged from our own communities and senses of community. And so I kind of moved in other directions for years. Um, but in the in the crafting of this book, I realized how much I had returned to um, Hauerwas's account of the church. And this is an account of the church that we're, you know, going, returning to Augustine. We are a pilgrim people, um, you mm-hmm. know, using Hauerwas and Willemann's image of resident aliens, mm-hmm. which means we're Jeremiah 29 prayers. We pray for the good of the city. We pray for the good of where we are. We bless, you know, in the language of scripture, we bless those uh, in the world that God puts us in the path of, um, and we wipe the dust off our sandals against those who won't have us or are not interested in us. Um, but we are most certainly in the world. Um, and if we are saved people in the world, that that's going to look like things. What's mm-hmm. it going to look like? Maybe um, Berkeley computer engineers um, using their gifts um, for a software company in um, you know certain parts of San Francisco. Um but we're also not of the world. Um, we understand we are a pilgrim people in the same language of Muhal. We're riddling people. We're pushing towards the consummation of the riddles. Um, and we don't believe that those riddles can be solved entirely in this world. And so we're people on the move, um, even if we're also people who settle in neighborhoods and communities. And so this kind of imagery that I take from Augustine is very much the um, kind of theological picture that informs my accounts of Redeemer um, mm. and all these Ecclesia Project churches as, as pilgrim people, blessing those in practical ways, refusing the literal exploits of the world and trying to be, bear witness to what the world is in its truthfulness. One of the things I say is that, you know, and I get this from Bonhoeffer, is that you can only see the reality of the world accordingly by living in it. And that's mm. one of the parts of it, right? From the, from the perspective of racial capitalism, what I've portrayed in Redeemer uh, is not simply absurd, but it's obviously absurd. <laughs> you know, <laughs> who would live that way? Um, obviously, the trajectory of the world is upward mobility. Um, and, well, it's only by living in a very different world that the hermeneutics opens up that no, that's not the best way to live. It's not going to bring mm. you the greatest joy, the greatest forms of relationships and friendship. Uh, it's not going to fulfill you. It's not going to get you up in the morning. Um, and so, but, but you can only see that by doing it. 
Um, and that's why the Gospels is such an interesting thing in the New Testament, right? It's, it's the disciples going back and forth between seeing the world as Jesus sees it and seeing the world as they see it. Um, and yeah. it's a constant hermeneutical wrestling match. Which side of the story are they going to end up? And, you know, the good news, of course, is it's not up to them. The spirit enables them to see. Right. Uh, and I think that's what I'm hoping people see in the second part of the book is here's a lens of how the world actually is, no matter the lies of racial capitalism, uh, no matter the lies of race language and its fictions and its exploitations. Well, Dr. Tran, uh, thank you for coming on A History of Christian Theology. I, I have really learned a lot even from this conversation, um, and I'd suggest to all my listeners – um, you know, there's so much more in the book. We, I, you know, part of, partly at Dr. Tran's lead, but uh, focus more on kind of five, chapters five and six. But there's a lot of interesting history about the Delta Chinese, uh, about the ways in which that uh, illustrates sort of the difficulties of the binary racial language um, that that's often employed. Um, and yeah, some challenging um, stuff that I sort of took as orthodoxy you know, the, like how the Irish became white, um, you know, stuff like that. Like I just, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of thought provoking stuff in here, but I, I appreciated uh, being able to talk with you about the, the sort of metaphysical uh, underpinning. So I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure.